as we begin. Uh, I've titled this sermon, Have This Mind in You. This grew out of a study we did in Sola Gracia Student Fellowship about a little over a month ago from Philippians chapter 2. And uh, being convicted, as we should be, whenever we delve into the second chapter or when we read the account of the publican and the Pharisee in the temple, the seven-word prayer of the publican. And Jesus went on to say, who, who then went away justified? Was it the one who stood in the middle to be seen by men, self-justification, an attempt at self-justification? Or was it the one who stood over in the shadows and smote his breast and all he could say was, Lord, be merciful to me. So, have this mind in you. <clears throat> or, we could also call this sermon, A Humble Mind. We began with that parable there of Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the publican praying in the temple and being able to contrast the two prayers, and we'll look at that again by the end of the sermon. But if we are to imitate Christ in this manner, I could call it a humble mind. In this half hour or so, we're going to take a look at Christ himself from his birth to his death, a quick overview here as the supreme example in history of great humility. <clears throat> Don't be going and talking to my girls now afterwards because they're going to tell you how much I need this sermon. I'll just put that at rest right now. But we all need this sermon, of course, and may the Lord convict us as we look in His Word. So before we look at the sermon text, there's a couple of introductory points I'd like to make, hopefully to convince us all of the central importance of our theme today. Number one is that humility is the essential characteristic of a true Christian's relationship with God. God hates nothing more than proud looks and a proud heart. Pride, the Bible tells us, is an abomination to God. The Bible is full full of examples of how God humbles the proud. Perhaps no instance is more striking here than the arrogance of King Nebuchadnezzar when he was at the height of his kingdom and he's looking out above his kingdom, around his kingdom, and he received that troubling dream. And Daniel, of course, interpreted for him that he would go and dwell among the beasts of the field and his nails grew long, his hair grew long, and he was eating the grass of the field just like a cow or, or a goat would. So God humbled him. Tozer writes, Is it not a great significance that Nebuchadnezzar's reason and humility returned to him together? So here is King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the greatest nation, the greatest country in the known world of the day. He was sovereign over the greatest empire on the face of the earth. Having been driven into the fields to graze among the beasts, he said upon coming to his senses in Daniel 4.34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heaven, and what happened? My reason returned to me. Then in chapter 4, verse 37, he goes on to say, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
I think someday we're going to have the opportunity in heaven to sit down with Nebuchadnezzar who came to the end of his rope and all he could find was grass to eat in the field. And God miraculously raised him and brought them up from that. And what did he do? He gave one of the greatest doxologies in all of Scripture. Notice that when Nebuchadnezzar saw himself large and God small, he was insane. Sanity only returned as he began to see God as all and himself as nothing. We look to the prophet Micah. You'll remember in Micah 6 verse 8. He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus, as he was accustomed to teaching, would use illustrations. And in this point, in Matthew chapter 18, he put a little child in their midst. And he said to to them, if you want to be great, you must humble yourself as this little child. He made a child a model of our dependence upon him. You see, pride is a nauseating thing. There is nothing nothing so fragrant to God as humility. It's an essential characteristic of the true Christian's relationship toward God and we need to bow down before Him in His greatness, in great humility. Introductory number point number two is that humility is an essential characteristic in a true Christian's relationship toward other people, first toward God, but also then toward other people. I'd go so far as to say that a major secret of harmony in our relationship with others is humility. There is never harmony without humility. Behind all discord in our relationships to other people, there lurks vanity of some kind. And when our pride is injured, our relationships break down. You see, we like the people who respect us, but we loathe those who despise us. It's simple vanity. It's injured pride. So if we want to be rightly related to God and to one another, humility isn't optional. It's an indispensable distinction for the believer. And may God write this upon our hearts today. So as we turn to our uh, passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, I'll remind you of the background or the context of it. And as you turn there, I'll remind you that the passage here talks about the jealousies, the rivalries, the factions, the quarrels that were spoiling the life of the church there at Philippi as they have spoiled the internal life of many, many other churches. We read in chapter 1 about certain preachers even who had been not just simply content to preach the word, but they were preaching out of envy, it says. So Paul was writing to challenge them. Their motivation was all wrong in their preaching. We read about certain women in chapter 4, Euodius and Syntyche, who were squabbling with other, and Paul mentions them by name. So this is the background that you see, this squabbling, disunity, discord, jealousy, rivalry. Factioning. There are things spoiling the life of the Philippian church, and it would be that way among us. 
that God has moved in our midst, even in the past two, three, four years in a very significant way. That's all I have to measure by. And I've seen that toward each other. Believers encouraging one another. I've seen more and more things happening. And we can thank the Lord for that and ask Him to continue that. But as we come to our passage, let's look at it. Starting with verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that above the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord <clears throat> to the glory of God the Father Amen That's a sermon in and of itself right there But looking back there, let's look starting in verse 2 where Paul says, complete my joy and the emphasis here is mine by being of the same mind, the same love, being in full full accord and of one mind. So how are we today, Paul's epistle to us, if he were to write it to us, how are we to have the same mind or one mind? So enter verse 5. Have this mind among you, and this is my paraphrase here in parentheses, which was in Christ Jesus and now is yours in Christ Jesus who humbled himself. In other other words, the only way to have one mind, to have the same mind, to have the common mind in the Christian family is to have Christ's mind. In Christ's mind, of course, is a humble mind. Again, you see humility is at the very foundation of harmony and unity in the Christian family. So we are called to imitate Christ in this way, in his great humility. And I want to suggest to you from the passage before us, and what we're looking at now is that humility proceeds in three stages. First of all, Humility begins in the mind. We've already begun to note that, but we need to look at it a little bit greater depth. We need to shake the tree here and see what falls out. At verses uh, 3 and 4, if you will, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, and once again this emphasis is mine, the Greek word is lowliness of mind, count others more significant or better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also on the interests of others. It's interesting, those two things in verse 3 that he brings together, selfishness 
and conceit. But you'll notice that they always go hand in hand. It's the flip side of the same coin. Whenever you find a selfish person, you may be sure that you are going to find a conceited mind behind that selfish person. It's obvious and it's only logical when you stop and think about it. If I am wrapped up in my own life and if I'm not interested in serving other people or in the interests of other people, it must be that I think more of myself than I think of others. These ones that have done these shootings, uh, they become to the, come to the point in their mind where they become suicidal. And what have they done? They've been dwelling on all of their woes, everything that's wrong in their life. They become jealous when they see good things happening to other people. And they're saying, why can't that happen to me? And then, of course, it's an easy jump with Satan there tempting them. It's an easy jump to want to hurt others and, of course, hurt themselves. But you see, a conceited mind lies behind my selfish behavior. So how is it possible, according to verse 4, to look not only to our own interests, but on the interests of others? How is it possible to become unselfish and to become preoccupied with the things that interest other people around us? We give ourselves to the service of other people. How is that possible? The answer is given there in verse 3. In lowliness of mind, count others better than yourselves. Now notice in verse 3 and 4, there's a reference to others. If we want to take an interest in others in verse 4, then we've got to count others better than ourselves. In other words... It's how we think about others that we will deter, that will determine how we will behave toward others. You see, humility begins in the mind. Now, for any thoughtful Christian, and I would hope that would be all of you seated here today, there's an immediate, very genuine difficulty in what Paul is expressing here. So let's wrestle with the text a little bit further. In human terms, we ask, how can I Human terms now, speaking on human terms. How can I count others better than myself when frankly they are not better than myself? That is to say, if somebody is a thief and I am not, or if someone is a drunkard and I am not, or if someone is an adulterer or a blasphemer and so forth, and evidently I am not these things, how is it possible For me to count myself better, or count them better than myself. It's a very proper question to ask. Very proper to wrestle with this at this point. Considering how sinfulness in the form of hypocrisy affects us all. It's a question that naturally pops up when interacting with a text in a meaningful way. Have you ever been studying the scriptures and you look into the scriptures and you read things like, Um, um, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You students, what's the next question? What are his commandments? You have these burning questions that pop up when you are in the word as you should be. And so that's what we have before us today when we're asking this question. We need to be able to say to one another that humility is not hypocrisy. 
It's okay to ask these questions. We need to ask these questions to arrive at a better understanding, being in the Word and being led by the Holy Spirit. Humility is not pretending that other people are morally superior to ourselves when they are not morally superior in a measurable way. I think the answer to our problem lies in the answer to this word, and that is better, the way Paul uses it in the text. Better in the original language would be better understood as being more important. The command is not to regard other people as morally superior, but to esteem them more highly. In other words, to recognize their worth. Now, yes, we're all rife with sin. We're all bound to hell if not for Christ is, uh, is coming into our hearts and saving us from that. But the Christian way of doing this is to recall who these people are, even in an unbelieving state. They're human beings. They are created in the image of God. And God showers His grace upon all. He showers common grace, what we would consider to be the rain falling on the just as well as the unjust. Considered common grace. He showers His common grace upon all, but He showers His saving grace specifically on His own. Those whom He has purposed to save from before the foundation of the world. When we consider others, we realize that they're loved by their Creator and He created them in His image. And we have to call, recall this thinking in our mind. We have to recall this to mind intentionally. They're not only created in the image of God, not only uh, is God showered His common grace and special grace upon them and us, but they are also loved so much by their Creator that He was willing to send His Son to die on the cross for the sins of His people. You see, that is the worth of other human beings. And when we recall their worth, their dignity, their value in the sight of God... We realize that even if we're speaking to an unbeliever, it could be our words that God uses to bring them to Himself. And these who are God's people, they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They are destined for heaven when they die. Those brothers and sisters who worship with us from week to week, we would pray that, that there would be no unbelievers in our midst. But if there are, we would implore you to come to Christ. You see, all this comes to build up the worth and the value of these other people. Then, when we recognize their worth being created in the image of God, we count it a privilege to give ourselves in their service. Why? Because humility begins in the mind. How we think about other people and how we recognize their worth, it begins in the mind. The example that Jesus The example of Jesus that Paul gives us in our text teaches us this in a very lucid way. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, Have this mind among you that you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. He did not reckon. He did not regard. You see, it's in the mind. He didn't count it, measure it, calculate it that way. You see, he said... He didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So, if we are to imitate Christ, it means two things. It means, number one, we must behave like Christ, but it also means we need to think like Christ. 
The Christian's mind is Christ's mind. And we must learn to think as Christ thought. And you'll notice, as I pointed out in verse 6, there's the way this word is used. He counted, calculated equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. The same way it's used in verse 3, in humility, we are to count ourselves. We are, excuse me, we are to count ourselves others better than ourselves. And so it's the same word that's being used there in verse 3 and verse 6. It begins with what we regard and reckon and think in our minds. This passage has been used theologically in very significant ways. Even at the Council of Nicaea in 83, a little bit after 300, around 8317, they were debating this. And of course, you guys have heard the story about St. Nicholas being at it's tradition. I don't know how much truth is there, but the story is they were defending Jesus' deity. And there was some remonstrance there who were saying, no, that Jesus was not really God in the flesh. If you have flesh, flesh is evil. And you see this debate that was going on. And St. Nicholas got so mad that he went across the room and just clocked this guy across the mouth. That's how staunchly angry he was in defending the doctrine of the Trinity, Jesus' deity. And so we've been debating uh, now, uh, and there's been several church councils called specifically on this issue about Jesus' substance or Jesus being in the form of God. What exactly does that mean? It, about the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, God becoming man and Jesus. But I will say as important as this passage is theologically, we have to realize that looking at the context of the Philippians, that Paul's main purpose was or is not so much theological here as it is more ethical or practical, simple humbling ourselves. And in this respect, I think he's very, very clear. Fortunately, in both respects, it's very clear. But in here, he says that Jesus was in the form of God. And he uses the word form is not the outward appearance. It's talking about his inward substance. Jesus was in the very form of God. And he possessed equality with God. He was God. But he never denied it. You see, what we have to learn is that humility is not denying what or who you are. We are sinners. It's okay to admit that. We are saved sinners. It's also okay to admit that. It isn't to pretend that you are somebody other than who you are. Jesus was God. He never denied that he was God. He never pretended to be something other than he was, which is God, the co-eternal, co-existent son. Humility is not dishonesty about ourselves. Nevertheless, Jesus did not regard his divine status as robbery, which is the way the King James uses this term, which I think is a very good way to use it in this case. It wasn't robbery to steal something from God. Uh, or as we have it in front of us in the ESV, he did not count it as a thing to be grasped or held on to. I usually look up John Lightfoot's commentaries on the epistles when I do sermons. And I like what he says here about the Philippians. He says he did not cling with affinity to the prerogatives of his divine majesty. That is, he did not regard his unique position as something to be greedily enjoyed for himself or selfishly exploited. 
He emptied himself. And so a very dramatic description of this is that he really totally renunciated his rights. He had every right to stay there in heaven with God. But before the foundation of the world, in the eternal covenant, God the Father and Holy Spirit covenanted among themselves that God would create the world. They knew, he knew, man would sin. But he also covenanted it among together that Jesus Christ would pay the penalty for their sin to be able to be restored in a right relationship. And the Holy Spirit himself would come and indwell his people. He was eternally, unchangeably God. He could not change the Godhead. He couldn't cease to be something other than he was. But he laid aside the glory. He laid aside the privileges of heaven, of the Godhead. He laid aside his immunity to pain. His immunity to temptation. And quoting Lightfoot again. It says, Jesus stripped himself of the insignia of majesty. As Paul puts it in verse 7, he took on himself the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He put on flesh. So instead of serving himself selfishly, he became the servant of others even to the extent of dying on the cross. But again... It all begins in the mind. It's because he didn't count equality with God a thing to be clutched for his own enjoyment. It's because he loved his creation. Though fallen, he considered his people worth saving, worth consecrating, a people for himself. He laid aside his glory. He became flesh, became a servant. He died on behalf of his chosen people. That were determined before the foundation of the world. So you see we too. If we are ever to turn in our lives. From selfishness to service. We must be able. To count others as more valuable. Than ourselves. It begins in the mind. What we think about people. How we evaluate other people. That's the first thing. Secondly. The humility that begins in the mind. Will continue in Actions, acts of kindness, acts of service. We've already begun to see what that means, but now we take it a bit further. Jesus didn't count his own status as something to be clutched because he did count other people more important than his divine prerogatives. And therefore, he took certain actions. Praise the Lord. The actions he took are expressed in two expressions in our text. In verse 7, it says here that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant he emptied himself to be born as a man he emptied himself to become our brother in verse 8 we're told that he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death he emptied himself of his vestiges of heaven of his glory of heaven to be able to put himself in and among us and he was born in a very humble way He was born in a manger the shepherds the animal keepers the farmers they were the humble people of the day that's who he was born to and then when he humbled himself even to the point of death to become our savior 
Even when he humbled himself to the point of death, who was he crucified next to? Criminals. So first he emptied himself. It refers to his incarnation. And then he humbled himself. And that refers to his atonement. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. He emptied himself refers to his birth. He humbled himself alludes to his death. So the birth and death of Jesus are together represented by Paul as the two deepest valleys of Christ's self-humiliation. He identified himself with despised servants in his birth. He identified himself with disgraced criminals in his death. He made himself one with our lowly flesh in his birth. And he made himself one with our sin and our guilt in his death. By emptying himself, he became our Savior. Lower and lower he went. You see, humble actions derived from his humble mind. And notice that he did it deliberately. He did it voluntarily. No one else did it for him. He took the initiative on his own. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He did it voluntarily. So we are called to imitate Christ in humility. And I've heard some people say, well, better not pray for humility because God might strike you with it. Well, I would say there is a legitimate way to pray for humility. And that is, Lord, please give me this mind that was in Christ Jesus. Please, Lord. We are called to do what Jesus did, which is to take deliberate steps. It's not like... We go to omelet shop, you know, I order my eggs benedict and the server gets up there and says, um, you know, we have grits, we have uh, hash browns and we have a side or a side of humility. What would you like? I wish it were that easy. But no, it's this mind in you. Take these deliberate steps. First in our mind is we seek to recall the worth of other people, to learn to count them more valuable than ourselves and then in action to divest ourselves of status. All of us, all of us are status seekers. Like the Pharisees, we want the best seat in the house. We want to sit at the right hand of the party host. We want to dress in such a way that we can post just the right picture on our social media. We want to draw attention to ourselves. We want to sound like the Pharisees. But we have to deliberately divest ourselves of status, of privilege, of dignity. Why? In order to give ourselves to other people in lowliness of mind and in lowliness of service. And it's in the doing of these humble acts that we humble ourselves. It isn't that humility just suddenly descends on us out of nowhere. We have to humble ourselves. We have to take practical steps. Giving our time to people. Listening to other people. uh, Concrete steps in order to serve them. Using our imagination to put ourselves in their place. Feeling their needs in order to give ourselves to them in their service according to their need. Charles Spurgeon, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. I won't preach his whole sermon, but this is the scripture he was 
he was expounding before destruction a man's heart is haughty but humility comes before action he said of that humble men are those who think themselves so little they do not think it worthwhile to stoop to serve themselves he goes on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were humble men they did not think their lives were worth enough to save them by a sin Daniel was a humble man. He did not think his place, his station, his whole self worth enough to save them by leaving off prayer. Humility is a thing which must be genuine. The imitation of it is the nearest thing in the world to pride. It can be such a fine line between humility and pride. And that, brothers and sisters, that is what we should strive for. You see, humility proceeds in three stages. It begins in the mind. It continues in actions of self-humbling. And thirdly, humility ends in exaltation. It wouldn't be right to leave out this part of the text in verses 9 through 11, where it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess Confess him Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's very important to ponder this. To meditate on it. Not misunderstand it. It doesn't mean that Jesus humbled himself only with a view to being exalted. That was not his only reason. It does not mean that his self-humbling was kind of a charade. Since he was God, he was here on earth. He could put on this persona while he was here. It wasn't a calculated business deal so that he laid aside these certain privileges only finally uh, to get bigger and better ones in their place. It does not mean that. But what does it mean? And that is the self-humbling of Jesus was number one, it was authentic. And number two, it was without any ulterior motive whatsoever. You see, Christ genuinely loved people he genuinely recognized their worth he gave himself to his lowly birth and even to a lowlier death in order to save and serve those who were his from before the foundation of the earth with no ulterior motive as a result of his humbling what did God do God highly exalted him the servant who, was, who died on the cross amidst criminals, was made the Lord. And you see, every knee must bow to Jesus. At now or later, every knee will bow and confess Him Lord. And it's similar with us. We bow before God. We humble ourselves. Why? Because it is necessary in and of itself, irrespectively of anything else that might happen afterwards, we humble ourselves before Him. And why, further, is that He is our Creator. We are His creatures. We are created beings. We are the pottery. He is the potter. And also, we are sinners. He is our Redeemer. It is right to humble ourselves before God. We'll give you that opportunity here in a few minutes when we take communion together. We humble ourselves before one another. We seek to serve one another because it is right. 
Because we recognize the image of God in those around us. We see their worth and dignity and value and their preciousness in the sight of God. It is right to give ourselves in their service. All this is genuine or should be in the Christian life. But love your enemies. It says, do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's account here. We're going to compare this simple exercise, righteousness, self-righteousness versus humility. You see, service is not a stepping stone to promotion. Service or self-righteousness seeks status. But humility seeks no return or no reward of any kind except the joy of serving other people as we have come to recognize in God's created image. Nevertheless, in God's ordering of things, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I want to give you a couple quick examples uh, before we move on to communion. It's true to begin with in salvation, as Jesus illustrated in the parable of the Pharisee and the Republican, the Pharisee exalted himself in his self-righteousness and he was abased to hell. The publican in turn humbled himself in his sin again, in his sin and guilt, and he was exalted to heaven. Now, does that mean that we can manipulate humility or have this great humility that we can use to buy our salvation? Not at all. Being pious is a good thing if it's the Holy Spirit that is softening your heart by means of the word. But it's not what gets us to heaven. There is no salvation without the acknowledgement of sin and guilt and repentance. When we humble ourselves before God in confession of faith, we're justified before Him. In the same way in not only justification, but sanctification. Is anyone here who does not want to grow in sanctification by the grace of God? We all want that. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Do you want that grace to be Christ-like? Then we have to be humble. It's only to the humble that God multiplies grace. In Christian service, do we not hope that God is going to use us to further His kingdom? We want to be used of God. Or be instruments of peace, if you will. Or instrument of God's love. Or, or we want to be a reflection of His righteousness in the world. Have we any greater ambition in our service to the Lord than to be an instrument in the hand of Almighty God that He may use us? Listen to Peter again in chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. We must get underneath His hand. We must get in the dust before Him. And let Him lift us up and use us. You see, it's one of God's inflexible laws that the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted. So we're looking at the three stages. What we've examined today is number one, humility begins in the mind. Number two, humility that begins in the mind continues in actions and it ends in then exaltation. Now to conclude in a practical way, We've seen that humility is essential, central to Christian living. Nothing 
is more unbecoming in Christians than pride or arrogance. Nothing is more unbecoming. Inversely, nothing is more attractive in humility than humility in meekness and loneliness. The Lord Himself, to whom we claim to belong, was meek and lowly at heart. Paul writes of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So how long, or how we long to see ourselves and others in that same meekness and gentleness. After all, it is the meek that shall inherit the earth, Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount. The imitation of Christ is bound to include humility. It can't go on without humility. Ah, you say, but how do I become humble? I'll conclude with two things. And I would ask you to grab your bulletin very quickly. And there's that insert in there. Michael Ramsey's five basic actions for humbling ourselves. And I would ask you to take that home and read it and let it uh, further convict you today. But Michael Ramsey delivered this as a charge to a young minister. It was an ordination address as this young man was coming. And he understood that especially young men need humility when they're in the service of the Lord. We all need humility, but especially those who would purport to be a pastor or a preacher. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, and in closing today, I'm going to just read the lyrics of this song, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, written by Charles Wesley. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. Breathe, O breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away our bent to sinning. Alpha and Omega be. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation. Perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory. Till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the grace of humility. Thank you for the power in suffering, if that's how you so choose to bring us to a humble place before you. Thank you for the self-humbling that we can do when we come before you to partake of the Lord's table as we examine ourselves. Thank you for how we can observe a baptism and humble ourselves before you to realize the power of salvation, the life-changing power of the gospel. So as we have witnessed the baptisms today, as we partake together of the Lord's table, as we worship you in the way that you have prescribed, Lord, help it all to be a sweet savor to you. Help us as we go from this place to understand how important it is to calculate, to carefully choose to humble ourselves before those around us. Give us that grace, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.